Hello and welcome to another episode of An Offer You Can't Refuse. I'm your host, Ryan S. Pettengill, and today's episode is entitled The Chicagoland Beer Wars, Violence and the Dilemma of Territorial Boundaries in Organized Crime. We'll be covering the years 1924 to 1930, and as the title suggests, we'll be focusing our investigation on Chicago. Today we'll see the coalescence of organized crime and violence, and in the end, we'll see the emergence of new methods of organizing criminal activity in the wake of what most people see as a watershed moment in the history of this topic, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. What would come to be known as Al Capone's Beer Wars was the biggest nightmare of the man who made Capone, Johnny Torrio. Keep in mind, Torrio had premised his empire in Chicago on a peaceful coexistence with other gangsters operating throughout the city. Violence was bad for business because in addition to being a distraction from making money, it drew the attention of the authorities. And too much violence could result in a reform movement which could be devastating to the operation. The expression beer wars can also be a bit misleading. What you're really talking about are territorial disputes. The cartel that Torrio had helped to build functioned along the lines of geographic boundaries in which each overlord had the right to force speakeasy owners or other enterprises to buy his liquor, including beer. Other criminal bosses could sell liquor in other territories, but they needed to have permission to do so. By the mid-1920s, Torrio's Gentleman's Agreement had begun to break down. As I said before, it was really difficult to control the actions of other people. What Torrio lacked was an ability to punish people who were violating the agreement, including non-cartel members who were determined to muscle in on the action. In the end, the violence would cost Torrio more than his vision of a peaceful coexistence. It would lead to his exit from the scene and almost cost him his life. And with Torrio out of the way, it opened the door for Al Capone, who, as we've seen, possessed a brilliant business mind, but also a raging temper, which didn't always serve him in the most effective way. Whereas Torrio was willing to live and let live, Capone was determined to conquer and dictate. Those who resisted were dealt with in the most violent of manners, and we'll see this come to pass in the event that most of us associate with the criminal violence of the Prohibition era, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. But before any of this will make sense, we have to get an overview of the cast of characters, what they thought they were doing, and how their actions ultimately led to conflict. The ethnic underworld solidarities of Prohibition-era America was a fabrication of Hollywood, and the Torrio Capone Southside Gang was no exception. In fact, it was probably the most diverse criminal enterprise in the nation at the time, and not only was it made up of multiple ethnicities, it also drew groups from outside of Chicago. By 1924, Torrio's major accomplishment was a peace treaty which prevented the major crime conglomerates from engaging in turf wars. Torrio would often proclaim that when it comes to prohibition, there was plenty to go around. Now, a plentiful bounty did not always prevent rivalries from emerging, 
and in a way it was really only a matter of time before things broke down and conflict ensued. But of all the contingents doing business in Chicago, Dean O'Banion's Northside gang probably presented Torrio's biggest challenge, and this was not lost on Johnny Torrio. He would go out of his way to make peace with the Northsiders. A couple quick examples. Torrio sold his own beer on the North Side, but he paid O'Banion a tribute for doing business in someone else's territory. And in return, Torrio permitted O'Banion to sell whiskey on the South Side for a percentage. Now, when it comes to everybody doing business in Chicago at this period, you really could get lost in the cast of characters, so I'm not going to dwell on every gang that was involved in Prohibition-era Chicago, but the scene was really littered with criminals violating the Volstead Act. You had the JKW gang operating on the west side. You had the Tui gang, which occupied parts of the near north side. You had the west side O'Donnells that were a force to be reckoned with on the west side. You even had the Circus gang, which was located in the southwestern part of the city. But if you had to boil things down to a common denominator, I'd say that the Torrio Capone contingent had a three-headed rivalry by 1924. The first of these heads was a group calling themselves the Jenna Gang, a group of Italians that on the one hand had become a fierce rival of Capone and on the other had forged alliances with Irish criminals who also opposed Al Capone. The Jenna Gang grew out of the Unione Siciliana. Um, as we've talked about before, this was an Italian fraternal club and in Chicago, it was started by Angelo and Mike Jenna sometime around 1919. The Jennas were based in South Chicago, and they started peddling Italian wine in that area. They came up with this idea of having a Chicagoan, mostly Italians, distill their own alcohol in their own homes and sell it back to the Jennas. And in this system, everybody got a piece of this action. And by the early 1920s, the Jennas were grossing over $1.8 million per, per year in profits. You also had an enforcement wing of the Jennas, and these guys were feared all throughout the city. John Scalisi and Albert Anselmi. These were two of the most feared enforcers anywhere in Chicago. And so the Jennas represented a very early and serious threat to Capone's outlet in the Prohibition era. An even bigger problem for the Torrio Capone contingent will exist on the north side with the organization headed up by Dean O'Banion and a collection of Irish criminals. O'Banion's Northside gang had established a monopoly for the distribution of alcoholic products on Chicago's North Side, and just like the Jennas, he had put together a team of enforcers who were both fierce and feared all throughout the city. There was Bugs Moran and Jaime Weiss and an assortment of other hardened criminals that were the enforcement wing of O'Banion's operation. And this peace treaty that Torrio had established did involve a 25% interest 
in a casino that he operated, really it's in the suburbs, but it's on Chicago's south side, that was referred to as the ship. Now this 25% take given to O'Banion and the Northsiders was designed to keep the peace, and for a while it, it did actually work. Torrio, as, as we've seen and as we'll continue to see, preferred to avoid violence, and so if you haven't gathered this already, he was incredibly gracious to O'Banion. The last group that I thought I'd mention would be the Southside O'Donnells, headed by a guy by the name of Spike O'Donnell. They're going to quickly establish a dominant presence on the near South Side. Now, although they'll present a threat to the Torrio Capone outfit, they're certainly not as much of a threat as the Northsiders, but this is the three-headed monster that I was referring to a second ago when it comes to the rivalries that are beginning to take shape in the mid-1920s. From 1920 to 1924, Gangla in Chicago largely enjoyed peace and prosperity, but Torrio began to realize that he had a problem, and it was more or less a double-edged sword of a problem. One edge of that sword involved gangs that existed outside of the cartel and they wanted in, and it was really hard to stop them from trying to muscle their way in. The second side of this problem was that there was virtually no way to punish members of the cartel from, from cheating, and those members had a lot of incentive to cheat. And what this is going to lead to is violence. It'll lead to saloon raiding, and it'll lead to turf wars, which is really going to define that era from 1924 to 1929. Part of the problem was Capone's profits in the suburb of Cicero. If you joined me in the last episode, you heard me describe the manner in which the Torrio Capone operation moved to the suburbs. That reform movement that took shape in the city of Chicago in the early to mid-1920s made it more complicated and I'd also say more expensive to do business in Chicago proper. Well, by 1924, O'Banion didn't see any reason to not ask for a cut of that operation in Cicero. Now, it operated on the idea that profits were profits no, no matter where they were made, and we either have this agreement or we don't. Well, from Capone's perspective, he was operating on the assumption that this deal was only relevant to the city of Chicago. And so already you're beginning to see this truce beginning to fray. And as I mentioned in previous episodes, Torrio actually tried to address this dilemma by giving the Northsiders a cut of the Lakeside Casino owned and operated by Torrio that was commonly known as the Ship. This kept the peace for a little while, but eventually violence would creep back in. And as it turns out, the opening shots had nothing to do with this emerging north-south side rivalry. The opening shots, as they were, were actually fired by the Jenna Group, who had begun to intrude on the north side territory trying to sell cheaper beer. Well, O'Banion noticed this, and he called upon Johnny Torrio to intervene. After all, the Jennas were his de facto allies. Torrio, for his part, refused. So, to punish the Jennas, what O'Banion and the Northsiders are going to do is they're going to hijack one of their beer trucks and try to send a very clear message. To retaliate against Torrio, O'Banion is going to begin to piece together 
a conspiracy that will result in the Sebian raid. The Sebian brewery was owned by Obanion and had produced beer for his operation for years. And just like Torrio, Obanion had friends on the Chicago PD who clued him in on coming raids. O'Banion knew the Sebian was going to be raided, but simultaneously, he also understood that this raid presented a phenomenal opportunity to punish Torrio. O'Banion is going to offer to sell the brewery at a bargain rate to Torrio, partly as a way to bury the hatchet and to demonstrate his goodwill toward the South Side, and partly because, as he claimed, O'Banion wanted out of that business. O'Banion had more information than a simple understanding that a raid was forthcoming. He also knew that Johnny Torrio had one strike on his record going into 1924. This raid would make two strikes for Torrio, which would mean actual jail time. Meanwhile, O'Banion didn't have anything, not even one strike, and he'd basically get off of this raid with simply a warning. Recall that Torrio's Indiana Brewery had been raided earlier in the 1920s, and the incident was a permanent mark on his record. So on May 19, 1924, Chicago police raided the Sebian and arrested everybody on the inside, including O'Banion and Torrio, who were there conducting business. In the aftermath of the arrest, O'Banion is going to pay the modest fine. He'll have that incident on his record, but he's also operating with a get-out-of-jail-free card. O'Banion's going to frolic out of the jailhouse. Torrio, meanwhile, faced up to nine months in prison as this was his second violation of the Volstead Act. And it's really here that the beer wars are going to begin in earnest. O'Banion went to Colorado after the Sebian incident. Publicly, he renounced his life as a gangster, but privately, he was still very active and continued to run his Chicago empire. For his part, Torrio retaliated by summoning Frankie Yale from Brooklyn, and Yale is going to reach out to the Jenna Musselman, John Scalise, and Albert Anselmi to basically work to assassinate O'Banion at his flower shop. On the morning of November 10, 1924, Frankie Yale entered O'Banion's flower shop, the Schofield, and it was on the pretense that they wanted to purchase an arrangement for a dear friend who had recently died. Well, when Dini pre presented an arrangement that Yale liked, the two shook hands, but Yale never released his grip, and Scalise and Anselmi uh, are going to proceed to shoot O'Banion to death. There's a really good visual of this that was produced by Boardwalk Empire that'll bring this incident to greater life. So if you're so inclined, check that out when you get a moment. In any case, the assassination of Dini set off a brutal five-year war for supremacy of Chicago's underworld. Several days after his assassination, O'Banion was laid to rest at Mount Carmel Cemetery after a lavish funeral. The absence of O'Banion made Jaime Weiss the acting boss of the North Siders, and Weiss probably made a temporary peace treaty with the Jennas after O'Banion's funeral. 
But whatever he did, he swore revenge against Torrio and Capone. And in January 1925, Weiss's operation is actually going to make an attempt on Torrio's life as he was walking into his home. Gunmen will come up and they'll actually shoot Johnny the Fox. And he's badly wounded. He was actually shot through the face, but this attempt was not fatal. Again, if you're so inclined, uh, Boardwalk Empire has another really great scene that depicts this that will add some color to everything and help you probably better understand it at the same time. So Torrio would survive, but in the aftermath, he, he basically swore off organized crime. And in the process, he's going to surrender all of his Chicago interests to Al Capone. That alliance between the Northsiders and the Jennas proved to be very, very short-lived. The South Side was the common enemy uh, of the Jennas as well as the Northsiders, but early in 1925, rumors began to circulate that the Jennas were actually defecting to Torrio and Capone. And this is going to prompt Jaime Weiss to launch another violent campaign against the Jennas. And in the process, the Northsiders are going to successfully kill numerous top Jenna leaders. The problems for the Jennas were only going to get worse as 1925 continued to unfold. Midway through that year, the Jenna gang was demanding tribute from prominent Italians all throughout the Southside neighborhoods. Now, this tribute was clearly an invasion of the Torrio Capone territory. And what Capone will do is retaliate against the Jennas by hiring Machine Gun Jack McGurn to assassinate many of the Jennas' highest leaders. So by 1926, the Jennas are nearly eliminated uh, when it comes to Chicago's underworld, and what was left of them basically went over to Capone's organization. So by 1926, the bodies really began to pile up. And this is going to lead to the development of a few things. The first thing it's going to lead to is the emergence of the CCC, the Chicago Crime Commission. And that had actually been around as early as 1919, and it was designed to suppress crime. But by 1926, um, it's really going to hit another gear. In that year, the CCC estimated that there were some 18 killings that was the result, the direct result of gangland violence. Now, the CCC was joined by prominent Chicagoans who were alarmed by the violence. Wealthy Chicagoans turned on the gangsters, and they began to deploy their own private resources to suppress crime throughout the city. Um, you also have the vice president, uh, Charles Dawes, who's going to actually commission uh, a group of federal investigators to, to look into maybe another angle to get Capone and that would be his income taxes. Capone had to respond to Weiss's attempt on Torrio, but it was often said that Weiss was the only man that Capone ever feared. For his part, Weiss appeared to be completely reckless, giving very little regard to his own personal safety. Later on, we'd all find out that there was actually a reason for that. It would be revealed that Weiss had actually been diagnosed with terminal cancer and knew his days were numbered and felt very little regard to play things on the safer side. 
But when it comes to dealing with Weiss, Capone's going to turn to an old friend, Jack, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. McGurn was born Vincenzo Gibaldi and was well known for two things. First, he had made a bold attempt on officials within the White Hand Irish organization back in New York. I told you this story once upon a time, but if you recall, uh, the Irish had mistakenly killed Gibaldi's father, mistaking him for an official within the Italian organization back in New York, and Jack was trying to return the favor, so to speak. But once word got back on this attempt on the Irish organization, once that reached its way back to Chicago, it won Jack McGurn the respect and admiration of Al Capone. Second, it was not for no good reason that McGurn was referred to as Machine Gun Jack. He was absolutely surgical with a Tommy gun. So after he arrived in Chicago, he embarked on a boxing career and changed his name from Gibaldi to McGurn. Now, boxing may have been his side hustle, but his bread and butter was clearly serving as the executor of choice for Al Capone. Capone and McGurn put together a brilliantly executed plot where they lured Weiss and a few other associates from their north side office and onto the streets of Chicago. Meanwhile, McGurn was perched several stories up in a neighboring building. And when they found Jaime Weiss and company out in the open, they rained down bullets, killing Weiss in the process. The Making of the Mob, it's volume two, but the Making of the Mob series has a great depiction of this event that'll help bring it to life if you're so inclined. The assassination of Jaime Weiss in broad daylight and in such a public fashion brought enormous amounts of intense public attention. Meanwhile, Weiss's second-in-command, Bugs Moran, took over the Northside gang. And like Weiss before him, Moran vowed to avenge the loss of his predecessor. By 1927, Al Capone was clearly winning the Beer Wars of Chicago. He had picked up new territories. He had picked up new rackets. But Bugs Moran still posed a very clear and present threat to him and his organization. Moran and the Northsiders still control vast territories throughout Chicago. But more importantly, Capone noticed a disturbing trend. Many of his rivals were quickly beginning to ally themselves with the Northside organization. So in the spring of 1927, Capone is going to propose a truce. And like other truces that we've seen heretofore, it's not really going to last very long. If you recall, Mayor Deaver was elected to clean up Chicago, so this increased violence was not good news for him. And even worse, in 1927, Big Bill Thompson announced that he would run again for Chicago's position of mayor. And this may have been bad news for Deavers, but it was a huge break for Capone, who began to pour tons of support into Thompson's campaign. So by 1928... Thompson sought to consolidate his power throughout the city council. To do this, Big Bill will introduce a slate of candidates, hoping that they or their alliances will help him further his own personal agenda. Now again, Capone saw this as a huge opportunity, given Thompson's historic blind eye toward vice. 
Capone is going to pour $250,000 into the Thompson campaign. Now, even by our standards today, that's a lot of money, but that's over $3.6 million in, in equivalency. In the mayoral election of 1928, Thompson was, gone, was opposed by the then U.S. Senator Charles S. Deenan, who is going to prove to be this reform candidate. But things are going to go sideways relatively soon. March 26, 1928, a bomb will explode at Deaver's Chicago's residence. Nobody was injured, but the Chicago Tribune would proclaim that this was, and I'm quoting them, the work of organized and protected criminals, end quote. Bombings were not the only part of the violence. There were numerous Republican ward bosses, underworld figures, and their allies that were the targets of this violence, and many of them lost their lives. This violence prompted the press to dub the election the, the Pineapple Primary, underscoring the use of violence and even bombings to consolidate political power. It also proved to be more than Big Bill could handle. Despite Capone's money and intimidation tactics, in the end, the Dean and Slate won out. By December, the violence was so bad that it prompted a meeting at the Hotel Stadler in Cleveland, Ohio. Al Capone will respond by grabbing more liquor territory throughout Chicago. The revenge that Moran swore onto Capone manifested itself in an attempt on Jack McGurn's life. Moran's men wounded McGurn and put him out of commission for a time, but more importantly, this attempt enraged Capone, who began putting together a response of his own. To date, there's still much speculation as to who actually organized these killings and why. Now, most likely the culprit was Al Capone himself, and as I've mentioned numerous times thus far in this episode, if you want to know a little bit more about this, especially in a visual context, check out the making of the mob. Naturally, the killings that I'm talking about are the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So on the morning of February 14, 1929, numerous members of the Northside Gang were lured to a garage in Lincoln Park, Chicago, on the promise of buying some cut-rate whiskey, which was being offered up by Detroit's Purple Gang. Once they were safely inside the garage, a Cadillac full of men pulled up behind them and followed them inside. Now, all of this is unbeknownst to the Northsiders. Capone's scouts, for their part, had determined that Moran was among the Northsiders. Uh, as they walked in, he actually was not. But there was a man who did fit the description of Moran, and he was present. Two of these guys that are walking in behind the Northsiders, uh, two of them were dressed as policemen. Now, they're not policemen. They're fake policemen pretending to conduct a raid. And when all of this gets going, they order the Northsiders to line up facing the wall of the garage. They were all then subsequently executed by machine gun fire. Moran had planned to be at this meeting, but as it turned out, he was running late. And it's very, very likely that this tardiness saved his life. For their part, the murders were absolutely gruesome. And when the press asked Moran who could be behind them, he responded very famously, 
Only Capone kills like that. Now, speaking of Capone, most Chicagoans assume that he was behind the massacre, but he had a really good alibi. At the time that the St. Valentine's Day massacre took place, Capone was at his Miami retreat. He was a world away. And in the aftermath of the massacre, he is very much going to emerge as the big winner. Now, I wouldn't say that this is an end once and for all to the war, but, but it's very clear where we're going by this point. The Northside gang didn't dissolve instantly, but it slowly melded, what was left of it, melded into the Capone contingent. Moran still supplied liquor throughout the Northside, and, and, and Capone still respected the north side boundary. But by 1930, Al Capone mostly controlled the entirety of Chicago's underworld. And as we've seen before, there's going to be a temporary truce that will last all the way into the late stages of 1930. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre attracted huge amounts of attention. And I don't just mean in Chicago or even regionally. I'm talking nationally. The state attorney general, a guy by the name of John Swanson, is going to head up a blue ribbon commission and he's going to begin to look into the income of the Chicago criminals. Law enforcement is beginning to take different and more creative approaches to suppressing crime. And, and you'll see what I mean once we get to our conversation on the untouchables. But for right now, the massacre will also lead to the emergence of what is known as the Secret Six. Now, in case you're wondering what this is, it's a leading group of elite businessmen throughout Chicago who were just determined to clean, clean up the city's image. I'm talking about people like Robert Isham Randolph, Julius Rosenwald, who's heading up an organization called the Sears Roebuck Company, Frank J. Loesch, who was a prominent Chicago attorney, Samuel Insall, a civil and mechanical engineer, Edward E. Gore, a very prominent Chicagoan builder, and George A. Paddock, Chicago attorney and a serving U.S. congressman. Probably most importantly of all, it's in the aftermath of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre that we begin to see the formation of what will become known as the Untouchables. Headed by a guy named Elliot Ness, this is going to prove to be an elite group of prohibition enforcement agents that are specifically designed and specifically aiming to take down Al Capone. The massacre also led to internal developments within the world of organized crime. The violence in Chicago brought enormous amounts of public attention, uh, scrutiny for gangsters and organized crime in general, and it wasn't just relegated to Chicago. Uh, you're going to begin to see other cities and other locations really begin to crack down on organized crime. So the question becomes, what do you do? What the powers that were in the world of organized crime decided to do was call a conference. And this is going to be, on the one hand, one of the earliest national conferences of organized crime in the history of organized crime. And on the other hand, it's going to take place in Atlantic City. It's not entirely clear who actually called it, but what we do know is that Johnny Torrio, who we thought was retired and for all intents and purposes is, Torrio is going to preside over it, and Nucky Johnson, considering it is being hosted in Atlantic City, 
will basically put on the show. He's going to host it. In any case, the Atlantic City Conference will be attended by mobster elites, people like Capone, Johnson, and others, but it's also going to be attended by up-and-comers, people like Charlie Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Dutch Schultz, Cleveland's Mo Dalitz, and many, many others. It was interracial. It was interethnic. It was a huge gathering of gangsters from all around the nation. And there quickly develops this unmistakable anger and animosity, most of which is being directed at Capone for bringing about this pressure. This is especially coming from people like Nucky Johnson, who is actually floating the idea that maybe Al should step down. Now, exactly what he meant by stepping down, again, is just a little bit unclear, but for his part, Capone just simply refused. If nothing else, the conference convinced a new generation of criminals that changes were going to have to be made if their enterprises were to survive. So, in the coming months, a younger generation of criminals, schooled under the tutelage of Johnson, Torrio, and Rothstein, are going to fundamentally restructure their operations. And in the process, what's going to emerge is what we call the Commission. Thanks for joining us today. As is our custom, now it's time to roll some credits. When it comes to the Beer Wars of Chicago, it doesn't get any better than John J. Bender's Al Capone's Beer Wars, so check that out if you want to know more. It'll bring things like Johnny Torrio's role in this whole uh, episode into greater focus, and I just can't say enough good things about this book. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think you would too. Um, as far as other pieces of literature is concerned, T.J. English has a great overview of this violence, including the massacre, especially from an Irish perspective. So check out English's Paddywhacked if you want to know more on that specific topic. And I know I've said this numerous times already here today, but there is a ton of great information, especially in the second season of AMC's The Making of the Mob. Plus, watching this will give you a very good visual representation as to what is happening. That's all I really have for right now. I hope you'll join me for our next episode. It's entitled The Commission, Violence, Political Crisis, and the Nationalization of Organized Crime. We'll basically pick things up where we left them off here today, but we'll see the likes of Charlie Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Albert Anastasia, and Benjamin Benny Siegel more or less reinvent organized crime. And in the process, organized crime would become even more organized. But that's all I have for you right now. Thanks again. It's been wonderful having you.